Welcome to the Elevate Purpose podcast, which is all about learning from the people working to solve the world's most important challenges. I'm Michael Slavey from Timshell. We're here with Danielle McCain from the Chicago Lawyers uh, Committee uh, here in Chicago. Thanks for taking some time to come join us this morning. Well, I'm thrilled to be here and I'm glad to um, be able to share the work of the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law. Awesome. That's quite a name. Um, Just as a starting point, tell us a little bit about about you and how you got to civil rights legal work. What brought you into this organization in particular? And then I'm, I'm sure people are curious about the kind of work that you guys take on. Sure. Um, My personal journey into uh, civil rights work and social justice work, um, I would say started very early on with my parents. Um, Both of them were from um, uh, the Deep South, Mississippi and Alabama, and grew up with experiences of um, living in separate and unequal um, circumstances, as well as um, two, I would say, pivotal things. Um, For my mom, her teacher was... um, the father of Denise McNair, who was one of the little four little girls that was um, uh, killed in the 16th Street Baptist Church um, bombings. And then uh, the second event would just be my dad talking about his experiences um, in um, lunch counter boycotts and different um, activism as a young person um, in Mississippi. So those were things that I grew up being very aware of. Um, the historical context as well as their lived experiences. Yeah, well, and that, that. Be- became part of your own personal context sure, as sure. of th- them li- living through the, the early days of the, the sort of the civil rights movement. And sure. Talk, I'm curious, I mean, how you see, to, to talk a little bit about the Lawyers Committee, how you see that work in some ways continuing. Sure. Uh, um, it's just, um, for me, it's a passing on the torch, um, or or the baton rather, for continued struggle and continued work around issues of race and social justice. That's just, um, to me, what they were doing in the 1950s and 1960s. We're just continuing to pick up that baton and move the work forward um, towards hopefully there being social justice going forward and at least improved circumstances for communities uh, that are faced with those issues. So the, the committee started back in 1969, I think, and That's it's been right. around for 50 years, close to. Yes. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit, just tell, tell, tell our, the folks listening a little bit about exactly what the, communi- the committee does, what your work is like, the kinds of cases you take on to give people a shape for the kinds of cases we're talking about. Sure. So we've been around since 1969, very proud of uh, that history, uh, long history of social justice and racial justice work. Um, the body of our work is a range of um, advocacy, direct litigation, as well as um, outreach and education um, about issues of racial justice and social justice. Are are there some, I know a lot of your focus uh, is around fair housing work. Um, Sure. Are are there some particular cases, uh, obviously not details, but types of cases that that you see regularly still in Chicago that, that are the kinds of things that create the need for a consortium like this, right? You're, you're a consortium of not just your own staff, but also 40 plus firms in the city contributing pro bono work. Um, you mentioned this concept of a co-counsel model, right? This is, this is a lot of capacity, right? And it, and I, I got to imagine that there are a lot of, there are a lot of access and representation 
problems and challenges and gaps that you guys are filling. Can you, sure. can you give a little bit more specifics about just the kinds of cases that you guys okay, help with? Okay. Um, so we advance civil rights and racial um, justice through the power and the promise of the law. So that's why the combination of our lawyers as a staff as well as the co-counsel um, of the larger law firms who are providing pro bono hours um, towards this work is so critical and so important. And our cases range from um, fair housing cases, which is where I primarily focus, but we have uh, employment discrimination cases, we have um, um, hate crime cases, we have cases um, that are um, involving um, community economic development, which is one of our uh, other project focuses and we have voting rights and we have education so um, spanning a huge gamut of, of yes. <laughs> access civil rights sort of fa fairness justice questions across the board sure um, so all in Chicago all in the Chicago area primarily okay um, we like to say greater Chicago area yeah. so um, and you talk you said you've recently sort of begun build started start to build a group who's starting to think about some of the the community and police issues that, that have been so much in the news over sure. the last several weeks over the last several years um how how have those things you know chicago has is has has re-become a bit infamous for violence sure. uh and and there are a lot of rights and access and fairness and justice issues behind that sure. um how has how has you know the either the resurgence of gang violence and gun violence in the city uh, changed your work or, or created m more need for more access, more gaps for people being underrepresented? Sure. Well, I, th I think it's a combination of things. So one thing is um, the communities in which we serve are the most underserved communities, communities that have a need. They're also the communities that face the most the most injustice and lack of resources to to access to justice. Mm -hmm. So um, we fill that void and those gaps, as well as um, on t in terms of the police um, accountability side of things. Um, you know, with the given cases that we've seen, um, Rakia Boyd here in Chicago, Laquan McDonald, which was a you know huge um, case that made national news here in Chicago. We um, have been working to um, bring communities closer with the police mm -hmm. as well as have some accountability in place so that the communities feel that the police are there to serve and protect them. And there's that trust that's, that we're hoping will be built over time. And then at the end of the day, we want the police to be held accountable when these situations occur that are you know, flat out wrong. We want there to be things in place so that um, justice is served ultimately. Yeah, the question of trust is so interesting. I think when we think about inequality and think about injustice in all of its forms, um, you know, I, th I think if you ask a lot of people, right, that, that part of why this is so contentious and so uh, in tr fr frustratingly intractable at times, uh, it, it seems that the people will will we'll state people who, you know, will come out against things like affirmative action laws and other things, which, you know, the Supreme Court just upheld Texas, some of those other things have been in the news again very recently, um, is, is that, you know, we have these concepts, we have these values and beliefs about the justice being blind. Sure. But it seems like in practice we fall short of that. Sure. And, and that I'll, to a huge degree, 
it, it from your mission seems like trying to to balance scales that are theoretically balanced but practically not. Sure, I would I would certainly say that true. That's true. Um, we're in a time right now where there's the resurgence of civil rights issues and matters and racial issues and so on. Not that they ever went away. Yeah, th and I think that's one of the things that that um, feels like a very problematic misconception. Yes, that, that that we solved this and it's coming right, back is right. doesn't Partic seem to be true. Particularly having an African American um, president, I think um, certainly painted the illusion that we were in a post-racial society and mm -hmm. we didn't have mm -hmm. these issues and problems anymore. But um, they've been persistent. The same issues that we, you know, that um, civil rights leaders in the 1950s and so on were dealing with are the same issues now, maybe in a different shape or different form, um, but they're still there. Racism, you know, continues, mm -hmm. um, and it's not something that's just going, you know, that will, um, I see it as an ongoing struggle, just like, yeah. you know, we were talking earlier about just the struggle for civil rights. It's ongoing. It doesn't stop. There are um, improvements. There are laws that are put in place. There's advocacy and work that we do where we see successes. But to assume that it's over or that it's done um, is, you know, really um, a fallacy. It's, yeah. it's just not the case, although there's advances and we're working to move the ball forward. And the, and the volume of the conversation right now also feels like progress. It's frustrating. It can be painful. It can be hard to watch. It can be, you know, it can be hard to look at sure. where we are flawed and where we sure. are not living up to our highest ideals. But the, the volume of that conversation feels important. It is important, and it's a great time to be a civil rights lawyer and be involved in civil rights work and racial justice work. Um, aside from the situations and the challenging um, circumstances that you know we're working through, um, there's a great opportunity as well, and that's something that we talk about often at the Chicago Lawyers Committee um, is how we can work to um, provide people with opportunities, provide people with access, um, give people a voice um, who, are, who feel like no one's listening to me and, um, and I don't have anywhere to go when um, unfair things happen to me or injustice occurs, what do I do? So that's something that um, we're very proud of and we're, um, I'm personally proud that we're having these discussions, these courageous, there's a book called Con Courageous Conversations About Race. Um, because they're necessary, because we can't avoid it. We can't, we can't act like, oh, everything's all right and these circumstances and situations aren't occurring. But the more we talk about it, which I think all of these cases and the police, um, the police shootings and, you know, and so on um, have really uh, pulled it up from some of the, um, some of the post-racial discussions that were, were happening, people are really having to look at what's really going on and what's been there, but you know, it's just been hidden right. um, and not discussed. So not now to, we're yeah, having and these discussions. Some of these things that, that sort of injustices that are more systemic, they're harder to see, they're sure. not as clear, you know, they relate to economic lack of opportunity, they relate to education, they're, they're the interrelatedness of civil rights and justice with a lot of the other sort of urban development challenges that, that exist and, and sort of just uh, sort of economic development challenges that exist writ large, whether they're urban sure. or not. Well, um, 
I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. I, I, I think that one of the things that, that it feels like we are in desperate need of a more complex conversation, which is inherently more difficult. Yes. Um, and it's, and it's in increasingly difficult in moments of crisis. Sure. And I think they're, they're, you know, you sound very optimistic, which I, which I think is, I love. And it's great because I, I am too about what's possible given the volume of the conversation and people being willing to participate. But I think we're still looking for more leaders to stand up and be willing to try to hold that more complex conversation sure. in mind, in voice, in that it is, that it is just as, you know, it's never, it's not remotely as simple as we have an African-American president. We are in a post-racial society. It's like, that would be nice, but that's not actually reflective of people's lived experiences. That's not, right. that's not reflective of what's happening for people every day right now in Chicago um, is being able to get into all of those interrelated issues and not panic because yes. it seems so big. Well, people, um, I think, who want to um, figure out, let me, let me say this, one of the, the good things, outcomes of some of these very tragic and negative situations has been the raising of consciousness. There are so many people now that are starting to pay attention more and say, wait, something's wrong here. While I may have been kind of oblivious and not really thinking about it before, there are just so many events that are now forcing people to say, okay, we need to deal with this. I need to think about this a little, I need to think about this personally. Like what's happening, what's going on, and why are these things happening? You know, why are these things happening? Um, so I think that's been a really good byproduct. And we have, um, um, I have a, a friend who actually, after the um, Philando Castile shooting in Minnesota, who lives in Minnesota, who, um, reached out to my husband and I, he's also involved in um, equity, um, he's more on the equity side of the work and I do civil rights work, but who reached out to us and um, said, I'm really having an awakening. And I know that I've been friends, you know, we've been friends all along. And um, I remember when, and he's speaking of my husband, when you talked to me about being fearful about the police when we were 16 years old. And I blew it off and said, oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. You're just deal. being paranoid. You're just being paranoid. Right. He's like, and that's pretty much how I lived my life around issues of, of race, around issues of injustice is it's not that big a deal. Then oversensitivity. It's, yeah. It's and now he's like, I feel like I've just been walking around in darkness and yeah. I'm starting to see the light now um, and understand more what you were experiencing and what you've been talking about. Um, so again, that awakening, that um, raising of consciousness, and um, in that conversation, he said, "I don't fully get everything, sure. but I want to know more. I want to learn more. I want to, I want to find out how I can help." Yeah, and, and that's that such was an, critically important. And that awakening know. is so important. But that last question, "How can I help?" Yes. is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. Yes. Right? Is that you know you you have this skill set and this amazing opportunity you know around you know specifically around civil rights law and you know the vehicle of the community to do really important work i'm not a lawyer um what what are are there ways that that people that you see that that people can plug into being productive around this conversation sure. around the conversation around work around volunteering around organizing other kinds of organizations like you guys 
that that need resources, that need help, that need people to be more engaged. Because we've had a little bit of discussion around here about how you know social media and the changes in media and the way publishing works and things like Facebook Live with Philando Castilla, like these are these have really changed our visibility into this issue, mm-hmm. right? And it, it is it is very it almost requires conscious turning away at this point to not be paying attention. Right. Um, and we can, de- people will debate what they're seeing, but it's very hard to not see. Right. And, and like you said, that creates opportunity. That creates opportunity for a more honest conversation. That, create, that visibility creates more opportunity for accountability, but the systems and people need to be there to make sure that actually happens. Not just going to, you know, I don't think we can't be naive and think it's just with more visibility, magically things will start to be right. better. Right. You know, people need to lean into that challenge, right? People like you and the work of the, of the Lurch Committee. Um, how can, are there other ways that, that people can plug in to this work, to this, to these, all of these issues as broad as they are? Sure, sure. There, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of issues and a lot of work to be done. And absolutely there are ways that people can plug in. I think the first, um, thing is to, um, learn more, just read more, um, do a deep or deeper dive into these circumstances and situations that are occurring, um, in so many communities. Um, you got so, any favorite places for people to start? So Books you'd recommend? Chicago in itself yeah. is <laughs> is um, everything for civil rights issues and racial justice issues and social justice issues. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, opportunities to read, to learn, uh, to be more engaged in communities um, where there's a need. Um, I live right near the Austin community mm-hmm. in Chicago, and you certainly can see the differences in um, – resources and access, um, particularly, and that's why housing is so important. I didn't talk, I haven't talked much about housing, which is my primary focus, yeah. but housing. Let's talk, let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, there, there's around as issues as, as varied as racial inequality and homelessness. Sure. There are questions, you know, theories about the housing first, sure. right? Like, and, and this is something we've heard in, from in different dimensions mm-hmm. of sort of you know, in sort of Maslow's hierarchy of like solving solving some basic some basic human needs creates opportunity for other needs to be met and other opportunities to be embraced. And without Absolutely. those basic needs being met, nobody's ever taken the opportunity for you know we can make you know college free for everybody. We can do all these other things, but if we don't solve some of these these these, these more immediate uh, sort of existential crises. those opportunities are never going to be realized. Sure, sure. I mean, before I started into spare housing work, I did civil rights, I did employment, I did other civil rights areas. But my transition transition into fair housing work really um, exposed me to how important housing is, how housing, now I say housing is everything Mm. because it's your access to resources, it's your access to schools, it's your access to healthy food, it's your access to safe environments. Um, And there's such an economic disparity between the way in which some people live and other people live and it impacts everything so um, for me housing is one of the more critical civil rights issues because of the impact it's health it's it's everything it's access to if you're injured 
Um, the, the relationship between housing and access, I think, is really interesting. I, I live uh, in Old Town, just south of North Avenue, and, and there used to be a division L-stop. Mm-hmm. And then in the 50s, got rid of it. Transportation, when absolutely. They, when they put up Cabrini Green. And there was a, a, strand, a stranding that happens, right? And, and that, like, as we think about, it, it's really interesting to be in, that, in, in my neighborhood and seeing the challenges around development, fair housing, um, how they're, they're now putting that I'll stop back. Uh, and, and how things like zoning and housing law r- sort of plays out in a neighborhood that is changing. Yes. Right. And, you know, the, you know, Cabrini is, is now a field. Um, but that, that has, th- th- there are a lot of echoes of that community that still exist. And, and that, you know, the idea that, you know, I think there's a lot of unfairness and a lot of injustice in just the way sort of development proceeds yes. in some of these neighborhoods. People are moved, right, in, in ways that, 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 that feel incredibly inhumane. Um, and I think, I feel like that's, I'm curious about your perspective on, on just how things like zoning, um, play into justice and access and that it's not just, oh, we'll put another apartment over here, but it's displacing whole communities, separating people, right? People moving away from things like school, right? All of these questions go with where you live. So when we think about it in the context of systemic racism, that's where housing policy, which includes zoning, development of um, affordable housing, and you know, mm-hmm. all of those things play a role in systemic racism and systemic issues. So, um, you know, that's how that's how it plays out to um, uh, maintain certain um, areas. Um, and may, may, not even areas, but maintain people in certain places of the city. Right. So well, and people, there, the people talk about the segregation of Chicago. Sure. Right. And and there was a really interesting mapping project that was done earlier this year, maybe last year, mm-hmm. and and they 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 took a really detailed voter file basically, and 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 mapped American cities, and and the 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 segregation of communities is is incredibly obvious, right? In in almost every major city right like you can you know you look at chicago and you see these like sort of islands in the city you look at detroit and you can see eight mile from space sure right like and it's just that that is not accidental right it's not happenstance right people just decided to live where they wanted to live and that's how it but i think that there's a misunderstanding about like, like well people just live where they live and it's like i don't it's not that simple. Sure, sure. And um, Chicago is a, a prime example of that. If you look at, um, speaking of mapping, if um, there's been some recent mapping to show that the segregation in Chicago has not changed in, you know, since maps were done in the 1940s, 50s, 60s on board. It's pretty much the same in a time that, again, people are thinking, we're There's in a post-racial also, society. Oh, yeah, yeah, all sorts of mobility, upward mobility, rising middle class. You know, all of those things that um, people say um, they want, but it doesn't necessarily play out in practice. So um, Chicago, um, you know, when you, when you look at uh, the actual mapping, it really has not changed. And that is... Um, 
very disappointing, very frustrating for ha housing advocates um, because there's been so many efforts to um, break down segregation, yet it doesn't feel like we're really we're really getting anywhere. We're you know um, we're making real inroads in that because there aren't there aren't these. Um, um, for a lot of people, this I think this feels very opaque. Sure. Right. Like, well, why? Like, where? Like, what would have to? Can you just try to shine a little bit of light into like the kinds of things that keep that truth true? Right. That what are the kinds of things that need to change around? You know, whether it's the city. Like, is it think decisions being made around zoning in the city council? Is it federal housing law? It's clearly all yeah. of these things to a certain <laughs> extent, but just to give people a little sense because I think. This is one of those challenges around, you know, issues around systemic racism and systemic inequality that it's it's very it's very challenging for people who aren't close to these issues to see them with clarity. Sure. And like these are the this is the thing that has to change. This section of this housing regulation in the city of Chicago code is what's screwing everybody. You know what I mean? It's, it's clearly not that simple. It's not like right. one line, one sentence, but just give a little bit of perspective on like what some of those specifics are I think it would help give people a grounding and like these are the things that we got to change sure one example is um, affordable housing and how affordable housing is built throughout the city um, and if you looked at the data and the mapping related to that you would see that disproportionately um, more of those units are built on the south side and west side of Chicago and not the north side of Chicago so that perpetuates the um, oversaturation of people living in poverty in concentrated areas across the city. So that's an example of, um, be it CHA or any of the other um, housing providers, housing agencies, not paying attention enough, and HUD as well, to how um, to uh, the dis how the uh, tax credits are dispersed for these affordable housing um, er for these uh, affordable housing developments, as well as thinking about communities getting their their fair share so that things are on balance, mm -hmm. rather than oversaturating certain communities so that there's a continuation of. Um, poverty, of crime, the, of all the, of these that things. That there is a shared responsibility here. There's there, a or shared there, responsibility. There should be a and shared, shared responsibility. access. Right. So that kids on the south side can have opportunities to have great schools or access to great schools that are on the north side. Right. A lot of times. Rather than being in sort of a downward spiral. Right. Right. So, um, and that comes with where you live. That's why housing is so important. Unfortunately, you know, we don't have everything where it doesn't matter where you live, you have access to all of these things. That just is not, that just is not the case. Yeah. So, um, um, so that's why um, we need to really be looking at how do we disperse housing throughout the city right. and who's, who's being um, benefited and who's being burdened. Mm -hmm. That's a way in which we like to talk about it. And um, that discussion needs to happen more. People need to be more aware of okay, this is how the policy works to create um, these divided communities and maintain segregation in the city of Chicago. Fascinating. I, one of the things that I'm, that I'm super curious in, about personally relative to the Chicago Lawyers Committee and a little bit of a, a shift back to the, your organization and what you guys do and how you work is 
this co-counsel model and, and creating opportunities for, I know you've, you've had a partnership with lots of firms. I, I saw Skadden Arps was one of them, sure. right? It was, just, you know, Skadden is, is sort of known as like the biggest of the big law, right? It's sort of like the meanest of the white shoe law. I mean, they have this sort of, this mentality, right? This, this uh, may be fair, may be unfair uh, uh, sort of uh, reputation, um, but for ex- excellent lawyers. Excellent, yes, uh, definitely. And But th- I'm curious about what you see from the, the people that you work with, from not just Skadden, from, but from other big firms who, my wife was a lawyer, and I, and I watched her, I, you know, my dad was a lawyer, worked in some of these kinds of places. Um, and people eager for the kind of work that you offer them to engage in, right? That like, that there is a hunger and a desire to get closer to, you know, this, you know, work and providing service and pro bono work to communities that are underserved, right? That are not going to be hiring Skadden Arps anytime soon at a thousand dollars an hour or more, right? That, but that the people who do work in those firms are, are in fact, craving this kind of meaning craving this kind of purpose right absolutely um it's uh our model is very special in that um we have the power that's the power of it the power of um some of these firms where if you do hear their name and they're on the other side that means something it means something yeah um so to have their support in that way as well as their resources um, supporting the work of the Chicago Lawyers Committee is invaluable. And those attorneys come to the work ready and um, excited and focused and determined um, and, you know, and sticking with us through the long course because not all of these cases end very quickly. This is I, work. I suspect this is that most ongoing, of them don't. Yeah. <laughs> this is an ongoing struggle. Um, so, um, so their work is, is so important and those attorneys are, um, so committed to what we do and, you know, not everyone can do public interest work. Not everyone can do civil rights work. So it's good to, um, for those lawyers to have those opportunities to, um, uh, participate in our work and, um, be able to serve some of their other interests and some of their higher calling. Um, to do work that supports and um, give and give back to communities. Nice. I mean, the the issues that we're talking about today are, are not unique to Chicago. No. Sadly, um, not that I would want them to only be in Chicago. I just want them to be <laughs> nowhere. Um, do, are there groups like the Chicago? Is there a you know Kansas City Lawyers Committee? Is there a Los Angeles Lawyers Committee? Is this a model that that has been transported to other places? So actually, the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights is. Um, uh, part of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights that's nice. out of Washington, D.C. And there are other affiliates throughout the country. They may not have the same Lawyers Committee name, <laughs> um, but they are part of um, the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Nice. And the work is um, very similar for the most part. That's great. And and you guys, uh, I, I got to assume that sort of like many organizations working on these issues sort of always looking to grow, always looking for more people to get involved. Um, I know you guys have a big event coming up in October. Sure, we have our annual benefit. It's Thursday, October 20th, and it's at the Chicago History Museum. Um, We are very excited. Uh, The theme is the power of voice. 
So we want anyone that's interested in attending the event, getting involved, learning more about the Chicago Lawyers Committee to come. If you go to our website, it's www.clccrul.org. Um, you can get more information about the event, but it's going to be great. Um, and um, we're very, very excited, and we want people to come. Nice. Well, hopefully some of our listeners will be some of the people there. Um, that would be terrific. Thanks for making some time to sit down and talk with us. There's, this is this is one of those this interviews that could be hours and hours long. Sure. There's so many things here to discuss, but I, I appreciate you giving us some visibility into what you're doing to change it. It's yeah. awesome. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to share. I'm always interested in getting more people more people involved in um, civil rights and racial justice work. More people involved in the Chicago Lawyers Committee um, because I do. Um, do think that we do incredible work and um, just more people caring about the communities in which we serve um, and knowing um, that they have a voice and we are that voice for them. So that's that's important. I share that anywhere I go. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing it with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. We'd love to stay connected, so follow us on Twitter at TimShell or visit us at TimShell.com. Until next time.